This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Grestek. Biodiversity and wildlife conservation play an important role in maintaining healthy and productive landscapes. And if you're a private landowner, you can actually be financially rewarded for protecting it. You see, over 70% of New South Wales is privately owned land, and a lot of that has been changed and developed to either house or feed our growing population. Government, charities, and lots of community groups across the state are keen to protect the biodiversity that's left on this land, some of which are a patchwork of threatened ecological communities. So in this episode, we're talking to some people in the know about how private landowners can be financially rewarded to manage for biodiversity, nature, or wildlife conservation. And we'll hear from some landowners who've been benefiting from it for many years. Sydney is very much a development zone, and uh, especially in the Cumberland Plain area where we've got private landowners, a lot of the land has been sold off. So we're getting a lot of fragmentation of our landscape. That's Bev de Brinkat. She's the chair of Greater Sydney Landcare, and she's a strong advocate for everyone from the city to the countryside to encourage wildlife habitat on their patch. We have one of the best populations of koalas in New South Wales. And through all that development, we're going to have a lot of fragmentation of the landscape, which means that the koalas can't move safely from place to place. Yeah, there's all sorts of blockages, even uh, in the inner city, we're losing our small birds because we don't have that connectivity anymore. So it's very important where we can is to encourage councils, but also private landowners to try and keep their land intact and continue to improve the biodiversity values of that land so that we can preserve our small native birds, our larger birds. We've got platypus projects in Sydney. We've got koala projects in Sydney. So it's very important for us to actually encourage people to keep that connectivity and the good biodiversity so that we can have those little creatures available to us in the future for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to come and see. Um, Wouldn't it be a shame if uh, our grandkids grew up not knowing what a koala was? As well as being chair of Greater Sydney Landcare, Bev owns a 23-hectare property in Crescent Head, just north of Port Macquarie. We've owned that property for about 44 years. And Back in about 2007, we did a plan of management for the land and got a voluntary conservation agreement for that land. And that was back in the days when it was National Parks and Wildlife that was running that service. So over the years, we've done a lot of work on the property. It's literal rainforest, coastal wetlands. So it's a very special part of the world. And we've probably done bush regen on the land for about 20 of those years. We put money into it and paid for bush regeneration to take place so that the whole block is basically in very good condition. So what value can voluntary conservation agreements do for people? For us, it was a big saving on land tax. We got a big bill for about $20,000 for land tax, which was going to be an annual payment. So by getting the conservation agreement, not that was why we got it, but it was a big plus for why we got it, that relieved that financial side of things and allowed us to then have the spare funds to actually put into looking after the land. That's a significant thing, isn't it? People often get involved with conservation agreements for the benefit to landscape, but obviously it's kind of handy to have these other incentives to take up these projects. 
It is indeed. And uh, on top of the fact that we didn't have the 20,000 land tax to pay each year, we also got relief from our uh, local council rates. Basically, it meant that we were paying very little for our council rates as well. So conservation agreements have benefits for the environment and landowners. And there's a lot of support available for landowners to do this work. Zuela Sledge is a koala project officer with Greater Sydney Landcare, and her job is to help landowners get involved with the right conservation opportunities. I have a fairly significant role in talking to landholders, and as part of all of those conversations, I do like to bring up the opportunities for people to enter into private land conservation opportunities. The way I explain that is that we start from the lower tier, which is very easy to enter and offers good incentives for, for landholders, and that is with Land for Wildlife. It's a network of landholders and professionals across the state, which started in Victoria, but within New South Wales, it's a big network. And any landholder with, I think it's larger than a hectare, is able to put in an expression of interest and in return they will get an assessment on their land by a, a regional assessor and they do up a report which talks all about the different species on their land, the species that may have been there and then recommendations for future management to encourage best conservation practice. With that, landholders also get a sign for their gate, which is a big plus. That's what they all love to do. And they do then have the opportunity to also apply for $2,000 a year for the first three years, which I'm a small landholder myself, and that's a big bonus, I think, just for having an assessment of your land. And it's not a permanent arrangement in the sense that it's not on your title or anything like that. It's more voluntary. And look, it, it's a good feeling thing to do. And that's the first opportunity for landholders, small landholding people to get involved in private land conservation. The next level up would be with the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, which is all about wildlife refuges. And I had an opportunity probably about five years ago now where Landcare and the BCT worked together for I guess in order to do a snapshot of where all their listed historical wildlife refuges were. So Landcare went out and visited all the sites that we could get a hold of and make communication with. And, yeah, that was a really fantastic thing to do. Wildlife refuges can take on any amount of land. They are not legally binding like a Land for Wildlife Agreement, and they get you connected to, in the olden days, it used to be connection with National Parks and Wildlife Service. Now it's connection with Biodiversity Conservation Trust. And again, you are open to support as a landholder to have advice on your land, various issues, and the opportunity to apply for small amounts of grants. To understand a bit more about how landowners can get support from the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, I spoke with Matt Carr, Acting Director of the Regional Delivery Branch of the BCT. 
So over 70% of New South Wales is privately owned land. So the BCT's role is to work with private landholders who have conservation values on their property and who are interested in managing those properties for conservation outcomes. And we do that through a number of different ways, which I'm sure we'll probably delve into. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that. What are some of the programs that the BCT has in place to meet those goals of conservation and how do you collaborate with landholders? Yeah, sure. You make an important point that we collaborate with landholders. So there is sometimes a misconception that we're out there trying to compel landholders to do certain things. We only work with landholders who want want to work with us. So we're not they're selling anything or trying to twist anybody's arm. But of the landholders who are interested in working with us, we offer a number of different programs. But essentially, those programs result in different types of conservation agreements over a property. They can be either termed or in perpetuity. And I can talk about what in perpetuity means in a moment. And the different types of covenants that we offer work in different ways. So they work to suit different landowners needs and interests to be really simple about it they range from what we call our conservation partners program agreements which are conservation agreements that are registered on the title of the property and then we provide financial support through grant funding right through to what we call a conservation management program where we target particular conservation assets and the landholders make a bid to us and tell us how much they would need in order to manage those conservation values on their property. And if their bids are successful, um, we then manage annual payments that are released to them in trust to uh, implement those management actions. So the BCT is a, a funds manager. So we receive and invest $70 million a year through the New South Wales government's climate change fund. Um, and we manage that money in trust and then release it through annual management payments so that each year um, the landholders can be guaranteed that money is available to them to fund their conservation efforts on their property. I understand that there are boots on the ground who come out and work with landholders to assess areas and then it's implementing certain management plans and that kind of thing. What does that sort of look like? At its most basic, that would look like a landholder coming to us and saying, I'd be interested in putting a conservation agreement on my property. We would then assess their application and if they met the basic eligibility criteria we'd go out and meet with them we'd talk through what it means and what their options are we would do an assessment of their property so that would be an ecological assessment basically and mapping the different vegetation types they have on their property the infrastructure and how the property is currently used discussing with them their ambitions how they would like to manage the property and what our requirements would be and then in, in consultation with the landholder, we collectively agree on what we thought the management actions should be going forward. That would be written into a management plan. And then depending on the type of conservation agreement that they enter into, there may be annual management payments released to them in order to implement that management plan. And no two conservation agreements are exactly the same, but typical management actions are things that most landholders would expect weed control and we would help them prioritise which weeds and how to control them. Fencing stock out of sensitive areas, feral animal pest control, fire management, all those sorts of typical land management activities that a lot of landholders are probably looking to undertake themselves anyway, but in some instances may or may not have the means to achieve it. And so we will support landholders through that process and 
every 12 months we um, audit how they're going and, and give advice and feedback on how they can meet those benchmarks if they need help. My name's Jocelyn Howden, and in 1989, our family, with five other families in our area, in Glenorry Katai area, established the Glenorry Wildlife Refuge. And we did that through the National Parks and Wildlife Service. So there are five properties since then, and more recently, two more properties have joined the Glenorry Wildlife Refuge. It, it adds up to around 200 acres of connected corridor between Katai Creek and Little Katai Creek so that animals, birds, reptiles, insects, everything can traverse between those two creeks without being interrupted. Tell me what inspired the kind of collaborative nature of the project and you coming together with these other families? Oh, we just all cared about conservation. We were, knew each other marginally from just the community. <laughs> we just all thought the, the bush was worth preserving for its own sake. We saw all the animals and reptiles and birds and moths and everything there, and we thought, why not protect it? So we just did it. It wasn't a difficult decision. <laughs> and, and we just, uh, it, it's, I think there's become a lot more red tape and a lot more difficulty around doing these sort of things now, whereas back then it was just, oh, yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's put in the application. National Parks and Wildlife, who no longer manages it, now it's the Department of Environment manages it. They came and looked at it and said, yes, that looks like pretty good bush. We'll agree. Some of those people have moved on, but the wildlife refuge has stayed over their properties. A wildlife refuge itself is not binding on the title, but some of us have converted that into a permanent conservation covenant and I've done that it's the extra level of protection over that land so essentially in perpetuity that land is protected not everyone wants to do that because they think it will affect their resale value I in fact think it adds to value but that's my view <laughs> and in fact one of the property one of the original property owners who sold their property did not reveal to the buyer that it was a wildlife refuge. They are not obliged to because it's not binding. And I think they felt it might affect the value, so they didn't reveal it. And then later, like a few years later, we spoke to that property owner who was absolutely delighted to hear that they actually had a wildlife refuge, but no one had told them. <laughs> and as time goes by, we've noticed with Land for Wildlife in this local area that more and more people are coming on board with wanting to put some sort of level of conservation over their properties because they really, they know about climate change, they know about the changing political climate as well, and they care a lot about the native animals because they're becoming more scarce, the bush is becoming more scarce, and it's alerted people way too late, I think, <laughs> but to the fact that you need to preserve all this and they want to do their bit. Jocelyn has had her land under conservation for a long time now, and her bushland was pretty intact when she started. But what about someone starting out now? What state does your land have to be in to be eligible for a conservation agreement? I asked Matt Carr from the BCT about this. We do have some basic eligibility criteria. So the programs that we currently offer are mostly focused on conserving good condition native vegetation. So if it's a really large scale revegetation project that people are considering. We're talking you know, completely 
bare paddocks that, that want to be reforested. That's probably not our niche area at this point. Other parts of government offer those services and funding for that. So at the moment, our main focus is on working with landholders who are looking to conserve remnant vegetation on their property with elements of rehabilitation and revegetation. There's certainly an aspect of that. And that may change in the future, but our initial focus at this point is on working with landholders who have good condition native vegetation and helping them to either maintain or improve that. Are there any limitations for landowners in terms of property size or location that we need to be aware of in terms of accessing some of these agreements? Yeah, sure. They're pretty basic. So our conservation agreements vary in size dramatically depending where in the New South Wales landscape they are. So obviously the further west you go, the bigger properties become. The basic eligibility criteria for entering into one of our voluntary conservation agreements is generally 20 hectares in size of moderate to good condition native vegetation. Obviously, the bigger the property and the more conservation values it has, the better the conservation value or the the more competitive that expression of interest would be. Yeah, as a basic minimum, we look for 20 hectares of intact native vegetation. The challenge in peri-urban areas where blocks of land have been subdivided and, and it's harder to actually find landscapes that are at that minimum scale, is there any way to work around the changing landscape? Yeah, it's a really good question that you ask, Edgar, and it is a a challenge for all conservation agencies. One of the things that we look to do, particularly in that peri-urban sort of setting, but not limited to that, is to prioritise applications for agreements where they provide connectivity with other protected areas. So whether that's existing national parks or whether it's with other conservation agreements that the BCT manages. So obviously a small peri-urban holding managed for conservation that connects with other protected areas will provide a better conservation outcome than a small conservation area that's isolated in the landscape and doesn't allow species to move. Zuela Sledge, who we heard from earlier, works on koala habitat in southwest Sydney, and she's trying to bridge that minimum size requirement by bringing landholders together to build connectivity for this threatened ecological community. It's very important for me to try and encourage landholders with Cumberland Plain woodland or koala habitat to set some of their land aside for conservation because as we know, most of the remaining natural environment sits on private land. I do currently have three landholders at the moment that are very keen for covenants. They all have koala habitat. And unfortunately, at the moment, none of the lands meet the minimum size requirements for the BCT to put these perpetual covenants over the land. So what we're left to do is to encourage a handful of properties in the neighbourhood to all come on board and meet that 20 hectare minimum with a cluster of properties. So I'm working on that within a neighbourhood in the Wedderburn area, which is prime koala habitat near Campbelltown. And hopefully we can get these people some covenants that they desperately want so that they can leave a legacy. And often all you're doing is setting aside your environmental protection zone land. You might be using it recreationally, 
but you can't do anything in terms of development on anyway, and you're still paying rates. And the beauty of a conservation agreement is your rates become exempt. So you don't have to pay rates over the area that you put a covenant over. And the other amazing incentives is that you can apply for grants somewhere in the vicinity of about $15,000 a year for three years. And that money could go towards anything to improve the conservation outcomes, including weed control, erosion control, fencing, water quality enhancement, planting, all sorts of things. You know, so it becomes a really viable situation for landholders who may have a large parcel of land that the government is super interested in because it contains threatened species. And yet, zone-wise, they're not using that land anyway. Zuela works with a lot of landowners with small plots in peri-urban areas. But the same is true for larger agricultural properties, where conservation agreements could be established in zones that aren't used for production. But before signing up for anything, I asked Matt Carr from the BCT about what kind of commitments are involved for conservation agreements. 204,000 hectares of private land are under conservation agreements since the BCT was established in 2017. Of that, about 65% is in perpetuity. The rest are what we call termed agreements. They have a life cycle, so it might be that people sign up for an agreement for 15 years, for example, with the option of then continuing the agreement on and making it in perpetuity beyond that. Or the wildlife refuges, they're not termed agreements, but they can be revoked down the track if the landholder decides it's not for them. We offer those either intermed or revocable agreements as a bit of a, an entry point into our programs for landholders. The other end of that is in perpetuity agreements where landholders sign up to an agreement and that agreement is registered on the title of the property forever. That's a commitment that landholders need to understand and discuss with their family before they make that commitment. What that means though, and this is what motivates most of our uh, clients, the conservation values of that property protected and depending on the type of agreement, protection of those conservation values is funded forever. That's the main distinction. There's either those termed or revocable agreements as a bit of an entry point. And then there's the imperpetuity agreements, which achieve by far the best conservation values in the long term. So if you're a landowner, there are options to dip your toe in the conservation billabong or jump right in. But whichever way you decide to go, for Zuela Sledge from Greater Sydney Landcare, it's all about clustering properties and building community around conservation. I'm still in the beginning of this process. In theory, there's nothing official to this possibility with the BCT, but we have heard, I guess, a few hints that this is a, a way in which landholders could come across the line if they have smaller parcels of land. We know small blocks do come with more edge effects and therefore they need resources for weed control and things like that. But if you build a cluster of smaller parcels underneath a covenant, and create a land care community, that land care community can help with the different um, issues that come with putting covenants over smaller parcels as well. So I think these um, opportunities of putting more significance and priority on smaller land parcels in Greater Sydney is like a critical thing the government needs to consider. It, it really is because there's no other way we can protect these beautiful parcels of land forever. And even if it is only a five-acre block, that five-acre block could have a preferred koala tree in it and have a number of koalas visit that block 
regularly. It could be connected to another parcel of 400 hectares if it backs onto a creek, which falls into a national park, that sort of stuff. Recently, I collaborated with another land care project called Creating Canopies, and we planted, I think it was 1,500 plants, so trees, shrubs and grasses, to extend some koala habitat in the Campbelltown area on private land. And as part of that, we had 70 people sign up to come along and help plant the trees. And it was just seriously nearly one of the best days of my working life. There was so much happening, so much going on. People came in groups, they brought their friends and we got the trees in the ground and the landholder was so amazed at that. And in fact, we're yet to do some weed control work in her creek as well. So we've just planted out a good deal of disused paddock. And, and that all started because she contacted the local council who happened to be delivering the Land for Wildlife project. Zuela says that for advice on the right kind of biodiversity conservation work, like weed control, tree planting or fencing for your property, contact local land services. And for info about grant funding for this kind of work, visit nsw.gov.au and search for grants and funding. We'll put a link in the show notes. So by signing up, you might be a part of a newsletter. So you'll hear about other things from that newsletter and that sort of thing. And once you start going to events as well, you certainly get known and things come across to you in that way. For landowner Jocelyn Howden, who we heard from earlier, she's not only got the satisfaction of knowing that her land is under conservation and her bushland is protected, but she's also had a few special encounters on her property. I've now become a release site for wires, for echidnas. And that's another thing. There's not enough bush left for the local. And by local, I mean anything within a 10K radius animals to be released into because, for example, I received an echidna onto this property because it's a wildlife refuge from three k's down the road, maybe five acres of land had been developed by a developer just clear felled it and put is starting to put five houses on it and the echidna got displaced from where it would have lived for the last however long and walked onto the road and got hit mm. so that echidna went to the zoo came back and was released onto our property another echidna was brought because in the big floods down in the Hawkesbury a couple of years ago there was this echidna found floating on a mattress down the river. It was amazing. It was a really big male echidna. Somebody rescued it. They got out in their tinny and rescued it. <laughs> and then it went to the zoo as well. And it was pretty badly, not damaged, but just funnily enough, dehydrated, I think, and hungry. And the zoo looked after it for a couple of weeks and then returned it. And it came back here because there was no actual bushland around pit town which is where they found it that would be suitable habitat so it was released here as a big healthy male echidna and that was lovely and <clears throat> we very occasionally see it wandering along so it's it's good <laughs> that's a, a very nice use of the wildlife refuge no yeah. magical yeah and i get that some of those kinds of experiences and being part of that network is almost priceless isn't it 
It is. It's lovely. Yeah, really nice. It's value added. <laughs> I know you've been on the land for a long time, but for someone who's perhaps not thought about their landscape as a wildlife refuge or a potential wildlife refuge, what are mm. some of the things that you would encourage them to look out for or, or think, how could I add value to this property to, to oh, encourage okay. wildlife? Well, so this is what people can do. They've got an empty paddock, which is 20 acres or something, and they want to encourage wildlife back. They need to go to their local community nursery, local land services, contact them and say, we're interested in creating a wildlife corridor on our property and potentially with other properties next door. And then the local land services people will come out because they're pretty good around here and you can get a community planting day, so advertise it around the village or something, and then other people will come and help you plant native vegetation, which then you maintain and then it'll grow up. So putting back, if you have an empty paddock and you want to do something with it, that's the way to do it. Paint the picture for me when you go out and walk through your property, like what sort of the experience you get when you reflect on what you've done to to add that conservation value to it. It's just lovely to be in the bush. My kids all come back, they've all left home now, but they come back and walk in the bush and enjoy it. And I've got grandchildren who enjoy it. And yeah, look, it's just beautiful. Bush walking in the wilderness is absolutely lovely and it lifts your spirits. <laughs> It just is such a great playground for people to grow up in. So I spent some of my childhood on the Hawkesbury River and I spent my weekends playing homes on large rocky outcrops and wandering between the natural springs and yeah, see what you could discover and how you could make a game out of things and it definitely influenced me in terms of connecting to nature and influenced my trajectory in life. That's for sure. It sounds like getting involved with these landholder and conservation agreements is just the first step to many opportunities for connection with like-minded people. Yeah, it's so true. And even when Landcare does events, which may not be doing any sort of on-ground activity, it might just be networking and information sharing events. People come together and they're like, in awe, they're like, oh my God, I forgot I was part of this bigger group, this bigger circle. I'm not alone in the work I do. And it's so fantastic for people's mental health and for that, that required energy you need in terms of the environmental battles in Western Sydney in particular. We need to come together and work more and talk more and get connected so that we can help each other more. The Big Shift podcast is proudly produced by Grow Love Project in partnership with Greater Sydney Local Land Services. Thanks to all our guests who've generously shared their time and their stories. To find out more about the opportunities they've talked about, we've provided some links in the show notes. And remember, if you like what you heard, please share it. Thanks for listening.